Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, welcome to the Orsine and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As well as David, today we're joined by The Athletic's Adam Crafton and our Scottish football writer, Jordan Campbell. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. So that's 40% off the full price of the subscription. You'll get all the analysis and the in-depth features and ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. We'll get the inside story of Rangers Scottish Premiership title win with Jordan very shortly. But let's start with a story from your column, David. City looking like they need to strike striker maybe after yesterday, but Again, their wage structure comes into play, which you would imagine would make it difficult to get one of the very top names. Yeah, I think this is actually a fascinating subject, Mark, because we know Man City have been in the market or are in the market for a top striker this coming summer. We know that Sergio Aguero is out of contract. We don't know whether he'll be extended or not. But either way, I do think the Manchester derby underlined the need for City to bring in another and a greater source of goals. And it's not something that they're not aware of. They've got lists for all positions when they're looking at recruitment. But for this coming summer, I think centre-forward is at the top of their priority list. And we explained a few weeks ago, didn't we, that Romelu Lukaku is among the options, which surprised many City fans. I remember us talking about it with Sam Lee. But his record kind of speaks for itself at Inter Milan. We weren't saying he was the top option. We just said he was in the thinking, he's being considered, and, and that's accurate. It goes without saying that somebody like Erling Haaland is being considered as well. What we weren't sure about at the time with him was whether Mino Raiola's involvement would potentially bring City's hopes down because he's had a bit of a tempestuous history with City, with Pep Guardiola, with Chiki Bagiristain. But I'm assured that really it's his father, the former Man City player, Al Finger, who kind of runs the show or is more influential. And so that wouldn't be such an issue. I think the bigger issue with, with that is that there are going to be so many clubs fighting for his signature. It's going to drive the price up this summer because there's no release clause, uh, which comes into play in, in 2022, 75 million euros. And City don't typically tend to get involved in battles. His wages, I think, would be fine, which leads us to, to your very question. Other big strikers in world football, you look no further than Kylian Mbappe, who's only got a year to go on his PSG contract come the summer. He's yet to reach an agreement with them over a new deal. He's been heavily linked with Real Madrid and other clubs, City historically. But it's my understanding that City would not look to go in for Kylian Mbappe at this time round because 
because it's well known within football that his salary expectations are absolutely massive. That would be a problem for any club, I think, in this current climate. He wants parity, let's say, from what I hear, with Neymar, who is set to renew with PSG. But I don't think he's going to get it easily. Manchester City have quite a rigid wage structure, although they've spent really heavily on transfers during Sheikh Mansour's ownership. They haven't broken the bank on wages and they don't want to going forward. They don't want to upset the dressing room harmony. And what Kylian Mbappe wants potentially would do that. And therefore, as we speak, he's not on City's agenda. Uh, You could extend that to Harry Kane for different reasons, not for wages, but for the sort of fee it would take to even make Tottenham consider letting him go and Daniel Levy would never want to sell to a rival anyway. But yes, centre forward, Manchester City, it's going to keep us talking, but I definitely don't think it's going to be Kylian Mbappe. Although that's the same for United as well, Adam. They're, you know, they're probably looking for a centre forward too. They're, and Chelsea. I mean, and, and Chelsea. Yeah, and Chelsea. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, City might look at United. Every time United have broken their wage structure recently, they've made a right ricket of it. Yeah, totally. And I think um, I think David mentioned in his column today as well about Kevin De Bruyne's ongoing contract discussions that, you know, I think there is probably a recognition this guy's the most talented guy at the football club. But we also have to keep it within a certain limit because if we don't, then it creates new expectations when different players perform. And as you say, I mean, the impact of Alexis Sanchez, for example, signing for Manchester United is still being felt to this day because when Sanchez went in with a contract, I think that was higher than Paul Pogba's at the time, that then created new expectations for when Paul Pogba came to came to talk about renewing. It definitely created new expectations in terms of Ander Herrera when his contract was being run down and he saw what was being earned by other people at the club and he thought, well, if they're getting that much, then I deserve X percentage more in order for it to pro rata up. Um, and David De Gea's contract, the same. And they've now got a situation where they've got a goalkeeper in David De Gea who's been underperforming for two years on, huge, on a huge contract and no one else is going to pay him what he's on now. Um, so they're going to have a, pro- a problem if, you know, if they were to choose Dean Henderson to be number one. So that that is the perfect case study in how doing that one deal that you think is going to elevate your team from where they are to right up there, how it can actually go, you know, quite catastrophically wrong in terms of the dynamics of a dressing room. So yeah, I've not really answered your question in terms of whether United will have the same limitations. I think they absolutely will. You know, we saw last week the impact of the um, financial accounts, how much United lost over the last year. It would be ridiculous really for them to start going into Neymar PSG level wages for Mbappe. Could I just point out that one of the first responses underneath the column today was how on earth can you write about this when Manchester City were pursuing Lionel Messi, who would of course have broken the wage structure according to this gentleman in in the comments section. And I mean, Adam will know far more about this sort of thing than me, but I've always been under the impression from people I've spoken to in football that if you bring somebody like Messi to Manchester City, you find a different structure, whether he's, (laughs) I don't know the legalities and, and the ins and outs of this, whether he is, you know, paid for by the City group, whether he there's an agreement that he's going to play in the MLS at some point. And so the money is loaded over the course of the contract and multiple clubs. 
But the point I'm trying to make is that I don't think if City were to ever bring in Lionel Messi, I don't think they would obliterate their wage structure in the way that some people immediately just imagine they would. Yeah, I, th- I think it would be, I don't know what the phrase is, sort of more of a legacy signing for City Football Group. So it would, as you say, a bit like when they had Frank Lampard for a short spell, it would then shift over to the States um, in terms of the New York City group. But even so, I mean, it was quite interesting. I remember not long after Manchester United lost against Paris Saint-Germain, I was having a conversation with someone very senior at PSG and they were talking about the really serious financial issues that, that even PSG, I remember they said, you know, we are the poorest that a Qatar-owned club will ever be at this moment in time. And that was because of the impact of gate receipts. It was also because they were trying to renew contracts for both Neymar and Mbappe at the same time and really locked in discussions with two people who feel they are entitled to still uh, you know, continue earning what people were earning pre-pandemic or better in a very different market. And that's why I don't think you'll see PSG do a huge amount in the market in terms of transfer fees this summer because their priority is trying to tie down Neymar and Mbappe. But the really interesting thing that came out of that, I then said to them, well, do you think you could do you could do Messi because I remember I think that day Neymar had come out and said we're going to go for Messi um, as though he's the man that does the transfers at PSG having sort of spent quite a long time talking about how difficult things were financially it then became a bit more well you can do it this way you can do it that way and no one none of us really in journalism fully understand how this will all work but it feels like the biggest clubs when it comes to someone like a Messi or Ronaldo they seem to find a way to get it structured, whether that's through sponsors or through those different clubs in, in their network. There, there seems to be more of a flexibility. However, the big thing with like Lionel Messi is that the Barcelona presidency has now changed. And I think the next week or so, we'll probably get a big sense of, of where that will lead in terms of his future. So I think we may have ended up talking for a very long time about Lionel Messi leaving Barcelona, only to discover that he... Uh, once he gets his way, may end up staying there, you know, for quite a while yet. Although the only thing with the with the Barcelona change of presidency as well is that he, talking about how teams always find a way, clubs always find a way to get a marquee signing done. If he wants to make a statement signing, would that have a trigger effect on the market? I don't know. Yeah, I think the problem with Barcelona, I mean, Barcelona have no money. They're skinned. They are, yeah, they are skinned. Yeah. So, and there yeah. was also. Um, a landmark case last week with the European Commission, um, where uh, they were found to have received uh, to have received state aid and uh, both themselves and Real Madrid. So from from that, you know, I suppose what may have been a former mechanism of, of funding of funding these transfers, a little bit more scrutiny on that now. I, I, I can't see how where Barcelona find that money this summer to do a, a Neymar or an Mbappe. I think you might see them do more things like Wijnaldum on a three on a free transfer, but I would be amazed. But as you say, pres- these elected presidencies are very weird things where people come in with big promises and they they know that they have a very short lifespan, potentially as presidents, and that they are judged for their defeats very, very quickly. And that often therefore leads to short-term thinking where they may be thinking, well, we have this pot of gold at the end of a three-year rainbow. What if we borrow a bit more money and do it quicker. So I suppose that's the way it could work out. I was led to believe by a few people that if Laporta was to win the presidential election, he had assurances of an enormous bank loan. Uh, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but that would tally with what Adam was saying. However, and Laporta is expected 
to keep Messi at the club. I think it's it's fairly well assumed. Messi will not get the level of money that he wants. And that sort of underlines the fact that we're going to see a changing in the finances of Barcelona and uh, long overdue. Less so with Barcelona, but... Uh, and, and it may seem odd to go from talking about Mbappe and Haaland and Messi and Neymar to talking about Odson Edouard, but <laughs> but no, but there, no, but there, there there is thinking behind this, which is if some of these clubs in the current market want to be a bit cannier and and can't afford you know the world superstars, there is a player, and this isn't just because you're on Jordan, but there is a player there who a lot of Premier League clubs and, and a lot of Premier League clubs towards the top of the table as well have looked at and would, I'm guessing, be an affordable option. Well, definitely when you look at the fact that Celtic have got themselves into, when you're talking about short-termism, they've got themselves into a position this upcoming summer where he's gone into his final year of contract. So um, he's one of many of the top assets when you look at Christopher Ayer as well. You know, they've already sold Oliver and Cham in January Jeremy Frimpong. So you're looking at a lot of turnover at Celtic and it's expected that there is going to be a, a, a fresh slate um, under whoever takes over permanently. But, you know, Edward is a is a really classy player. He's he slightly dropped, he has dropped off this season for sure. But, you know, I think everybody looks at him 23, you know, doesn't he, he's not quite a number nine, but not quite a number 10. He's great footwork. He's physically, I think he could still develop even more athletically but he's definitely got the physicality for the for the Premier League and you know he looks like somebody who you know Brendan Rodgers if it wasn't Man City it would be a Brendan Rodgers at Leicester sort of type but could he go on even higher at Man City I don't think he would look at a place um, it's difficult obviously to say the transfer he's, he's from at Celtic and see how he would do it at Man City but he's definitely got the technical ability and the, and the movement and link up play that I think he could go in at, at a high end in England, which might seem strange considering, you know, everything was sort of resting on him to 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 produce the goods for Celtic, and he's not quite done it. Um, even though he's got twenty one goals this year, five or six have been penalties, and you know he's been out injured or he's lost his form here and there. But if you look at Edward at his top level, then there is an argument that he's even better than Musa Dembele, who many in Scotland thought was going to be set like a new benchmark in terms of Scotland selling um, exports to Europe, top five leagues. They got about 19, 20 million from Leon. Obviously did really well there in, the, in his first season. And I think a lot of people think that the, the or did think before this season that Edward's ceiling was a bit, it was a bit higher than, than he, even, even uh, Dembele. So it would be interesting to see if that move came off because Again, he's always compared to Alfredo Morelos as well. And Morelos is a, a different type of striker to Edward in the sense that he's not as polished as Edward. He, he doesn't he won't dribble past five or six players, but he, he's got that physicality and he's almost like a a one a one man wrecking ball where he, he uses his, his physicality to completely dominate teams on himself. So Morelos is one of those he could go on at any level at Scotland, but I think Edward you would be looking at I don't think he would suit a bottom half Premier League team. I think he would only be your sort of top six, top eight, um, that sort of style of team. That's interesting, Jordan, because you don't normally hear that associated or in more recent times with Scottish strikers. I'm also intrigued that you mentioned Leicester and Brendan Rodgers because there was a report last week or over the weekend that um, Leicester was set to sign or are set to sign Edward for around £15 million. Now, I'm not discrediting that at all. I think from what I hear, it's 
a little bit premature. However, I do think he is the top or one of the top targets for Brendan Rodgers and Lee Congerton, his head of recruitment at Leicester City. I'm told they're extremely fond of him and do want to bring him to the King Power Stadium. However, there will be other clubs, as you mentioned, interested in him, especially because of what Mark and, and you point out, the, the potential price. I think there's interest from other countries as well, the likes of AC Milan and really strong interest in France, which is the path that Moussa Dembele followed. I'd just be intrigued from your perspective, Jordan, if Scotland is going to become a more frequent hunting ground for Premier League clubs, especially after the, the Brexit changes than it has been in recent years. Well, uh, it's a good point. And that was something I wrote about the, uh, on the Brexit side of things in terms of teams targeting boys as soon as they turn 16 but at the other end of the scale where you're looking at teams top assets especially at the old firm where they can they can attract more money when they're playing at a European level Edward has probably not hit the heights in the Europa League or Champions League that Celtic would have hoped for but at the same time when Rodgers was there and they spent nine nine and a half million on him that was a real statement of intent you know that that money's not spent in Scotland lightly so I think if Celtic were to sell him this summer you know, they would still be looking to make a profit on that, a comfortable profit on that. But, you know, obviously they've got themselves into a situation where they're now going into their final year. And I think, you know, it's pretty, it's been made pretty clear that some players have been, you know, they've hung on to players maybe a year or two longer than would be normal. Where, you know, the likes of Van Dyke or Wanyama years ago, it was two, three years and then that was then churned out. But this 10 in a row sort of, you know, it's prolonged their state Celtic almost. But I think definitely Scottish teams. Uh, will be looking to you know make more money in Scotland you know look at Morelos in the summer as well coming back to him Rangers will hold it out for more than 15 million uh, for Lille and you know the, the other interest never really came in at that price but I think the the, the better Rangers do in, in Europe and they're really raising the bar in terms of Scotland in terms of what they think they can get for their players I think there's an off your track record now players like McGinn Armstrong that have gone down and done really well that you can say it's not really a gamble. I don't think Edward is in any way a gamble going down to Leicester. And, you know, Rogers obviously, you know, brought him in, developed him and used him in various different ways. So I think he is a, he's an ideal Brendan Rogers player. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. <laughs> Before we talk about uh, Rangers' title win, uh, just the thought on what Alan Shearer has written on, on The Athletic about the intensity uh, of the Premier League uh, at the moment. Uh, he suggests that the uh, upcoming international break should be cancelled. Players should be allowed to rest during that period. In blunt terms, his point is there is a lot of dross at the moment. There are a lot of very dull games, Adam mainly because the the players and 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 staff and everybody connected with it must be tired. Yeah, I mean there was a really interesting piece in the Sunday Times yesterday by Johnny Northcroft. Yeah, I yeah, I read that. Which yeah. counted all of this. Um and it it was essentially using a stat, um a data led service 
saying that players are running more, running quicker, uh, that the intensity from a physical point of view is actually up this season. So I think we have to be a bit careful. I, I, I definitely think there is a psychological fatigue to those of us who are watching football because it is, you know, for many of us, um, particularly those of us who aren't homeschooling, it's the only thing in our in our lives, really, isn't it? You know, there's it's the only source of entertainment. So I think there is a, a natural fatigue that's set in. I understand that, you know, people miss going, people miss the community of it. It makes the, you know, the wins feel a little bit more hollow. The defeats feel a hell of a lot worse. And I think that's probably contributing to the feeling. And there are then these like ridiculous, you know, ideas that, you know, if you, if you were to go on the on international duty in a few weeks time, you then have to quarantine on, on return, which would make it completely unfeasible and unrealistic for the clubs to allow it. So you're, you're then, you then have a situation where I think the South American games have been cancelled altogether. So, what it does then provide is perhaps just this two or two and a half week, you know, two week circuit break, if you like, for the season where everyone can refresh a little bit, get their energy back. And I suppose what Alan Shearer is arguing in The Athletic is if we give the players this break now, it will mean that there's a better product for the final few weeks of the season, a better product at the Euros. And also you have to remember, we're going to have the end of the season, the Euros, straight into a new season. And then we have the World Cup as well, in you know, all in the space of 18 months. We want these players to be fresh and protected. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I spoke to Roberto Martinez on, on Saturday, David, the Belgian manager. And, you know, the course of that conversation, the, the theory was really that it, this could take two or three years to actually reset itself because of where the World Cup is and the next season starting straight after the year and so on and so forth. It's going to take a while to get us back to anything like the structured seasons that we used to have. He's right, and I love listening to Roberto. He also represents the other school of thought to what you guys have been expressing, which is that international football must go on. These dates have been in the calendar for some time. There's no evidence to suggest that by pausing uh, the season, cancelling these international fixtures, it will give the boost that the players need. Yeah, I'm sure it will refresh them a little bit physically. But, you know, a Premier League player who played over the weekend, I was told, was... And he, he wasn't complaining. He didn't want the violins to be bought out. But he was sort of expressing exhaustion that a lot of professional footballers are feeling. They're also doing the homeschooling and things that they are paid a hell of a lot more to do so in many cases, but they are being turned out for our entertainment three times a week. It's draining, but from an international perspective, well, from Europe anyway, these fixtures are not going to be cancelled. I'm sorry, Alan, because there are no more windows in the schedule for these European games to be played. I think it's the same with the African qualifiers as well. There's a bit more breathing space for South America. So the show will go on unless anything dramatic happens. The Belgian players, though, play, and a lot of the Belgian players are going to play three games in six days. I mean, it is absolutely... Nonsense. Yeah, it is brutal. FIFA's perspective is also that there are quite a lot of players who have not been playing with their club sides who want to go away on this international break and they have a duty to sort of protect anyone. I do think they may show a bit of leniency or turn a bit of a blind eye to some of these mandatory call-ups if if players pull out, even if it isn't to do with South American travel and five-day quarantine. I don't think they're going to be idiotic about this. But I do see the other side of the argument in that if these games don't get played, then the, <laughs> the World Cup doesn't go ahead. I'd love to know what Gareth Southgate's view on it is, because if you look at 
you know, his England options, you feel at the moment like there is just this growing buildup of injuries that is developing, you know, particularly in those creative positions. Grealish has had an issue. Uh, Madison's had a problem. Marcus Rashford limped off yesterday. Obviously, Harry Kane was out for a while. And, and you just start, so you, you start to get that sort of, we're getting close to a Euros, which, which England player is going to be playing half fit in the summer when it comes round. Jordan Henderson's obviously out as well. Calvin Phillips, I think, is back for Leeds tonight, but he's been out for a few weeks. So, uh, Jaden Sancho. So, you half wonder... Danny Ings. Yeah, Danny Ings. You half wonder whether even Gareth Southgate might think, could we just give them all, all a week off here? I'm very keen not to forget that Scotland have a team going to a tournament. Jordan, is, is there a feeling that you guys just want to see your team play again after, obviously, what was the exhilaration last time out? Well, I definitely. I think, um, you know, going into a major tournament for the first time in, you know, over two decades, you want as much continuity as, as possible. Definitely Steve Clark will be keen to get his players there. But, you know, just what you guys are saying down south as well, like, you know, I've heard for a couple of, couple of agents as well that some of the players who are about to be called up, that there are some clubs who, you know, they're waiting to see sort of where the land lies in terms of releasing them, whether there is any mechanism to keep them there because, as you say, the, the workload and the, the amount of games they're having to put, uh, be put through. But, you know, in terms of the, Scot- the Scottish players, I think, you know, Steve Clark will need another camp or two before he'll feel confident to go in because, I mean, even if you look at Scotland, that was a, a bit of a patchwork team that got them here <laughs> to, to, to the finals in terms of settling on a system for for the last few camps, it wasn't something that he'd worked on for two years or, or anything like that. So I think if he can get everybody together, then he definitely wants it. But it's, def- it's managing that, you know, what international managers want with the feasibility of club level. Yeah, this time last year in the Monday column, we reported, do you remember, Jordan, that um, Billy Gilmore was going to be with the under-21s, not the first team, despite the rise to prominence that he'd experienced with Chelsea. And that was because they wanted him to get some games under his belt. So for somebody like Billy Gilmore, who is playing very little club football, and Scotland are probably hoping that he will play a key part for them in the Euros, games like these are absolutely pivotal so it is definitely not a one-sided argument, despite what I'm sure Gareth Southgate, Steve Clark, and international managers Roberto Martinez can sympathise. They have a very different perspective on on what's actually best for them and and for certain players. Billy Gilmore's probably one of the main players who will be, will be desperate for the for the international games to come around because you know he's not been he's not played with the senior team yet, and you know as good a player as he is and as high hopes there are for him in, in Scotland but he's still one where the midfield's probably the strongest area of the Scotland squad and him even getting in the squad is probably a point of contention because Clark's always said that he'll pick players who are playing so uh, yeah, I, I don't think he's a certainty to be in the squad uh, you know I think before if he was going to pick him he would want to give him at least a game or two to, to let him settle in and see how he handles the level see how he fits into the, the, the structure so um, like Billy Gilmore is definitely somebody who I think uh, will be will be hoping that it goes ahead as planned and he, he can be called up. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Let's talk Rangers then, uh, Jordan, and their title win. You've written on The Athletic the inside story of how Steven Gerrard delivered the title for the first time in 10 years. What are the recurring themes that saw him bring success to Rangers from the people you spoke to? Well, I was just the, the idea of evolution rather than revolution. <laughs> I think when, it, it seems funny saying that, in fact, actually, because when he came in in 2018, he inherited a you know a pretty shambolic squad. They just witnessed them lose five 0 to Celtic. They were still miles off competing with them financially, playing less than half the, their average wage. So, you know, when you came in, it looked like a very difficult job for for Stephen Gerrard to topple Celtic because really to be able to topple Celtic, you needed the the money that comes to the Champions League. But the only way to get the money for the Champions League was to finish top of the league because there's only one spot in Scotland. So it was a sort of a, a cycle that almost Rangers felt, you know, it was it was almost they were almost trapped in it. But his the way the way he's transformed the club at all levels um, for people you speak to behind the scenes or players that have been there, um, agents, you know, it's. Uh, ever since he came in, you know, it just transformed the the training base. Whether it was the layout, of the canteen to make it more communal, the built, you know, changing rooms were redesigned, gyms were, uh, you know, new equipment was brought in. There was an analysis room annexed onto the first team changing room to make it more um, more open for players to go in and out and uh, and try and improve their game. Pitch was relayed, you know, be a hybrid pitch. There was a cage put up around to protect the the, the secrets. Like every sort sort of level you go to, Gerard's left his fingerprint on it and I think when he came in you know the, the common theme as you asked me was he's brought Premier League standards to Rangers that was that's the one thing they say is that you know he's basically brought a team for Liverpool whether it's Michael Beale the, the hands-on coach Gary McAllister he's, he's number two Jordan Milson the fitness guy you know Tom Colshaw he, he's right-hand man you look at it and they've brought in the standards they've grown up with to Rangers that backroom team was crucial, wasn't it? And, and the experience that he that he put around him in certain places. No, definitely. And, you know, I spoke to Dave King, the, the former chairman, who is the man who was behind his appointment. You know, he, he he'd appointed Mark Warburton. That had faded when he came up into the Premiership. He never invested in him like he invested in Stephen Gerrard. But Pedro Caixinha, you know, they gave him eight million pounds to spend on you know Mexican and Portuguese players predominantly with no background in Scottish football. Didn't work out the timing of the director of football coming in after him, so that was mixed up. But so I think he had, he knew he had to get this one right, and he couldn't afford another another transfer kitty to be wasted. So it, it was a strange how it came about. Actually, Gerard brought his under 18s team to Ibrooks to play October 2017 when when Graham Murray had just taken caretaker charge for the second time and said they'd sort of had a, a light-hearted joke being a, a massive Liverpool fan that, you know, he would, might give him a call one day and see if he fancies coming to take over. And he said it was basically when he went through the the candidates that he wasn't convinced by anybody and he just thought that Gerrard's 
he had, I think they had 15 conversations, him and Mark Allen, the, the sporting director at the time, over um, whether he wanted to go into management, what he would need to feel that he could do the job. And he, he was pretty convinced. The backroom staff, um, you know, at, at Liverpool, he never had a pre-existing relationship with Michael Beale, but he he picked him as his coach who was who was going to implement how he saw the game. Because that's the thing, when Gerard came up, he said, I know how I, I see the game. Uh, you know, I know how I want it to look, sorry, was how he, how he framed it. And I think you get that very visceral sort of understanding of how he wants his team to play, the characteristics he wants to represent him. But I think he's he's humble enough to realise that he only had 18 months experience on the, on the park at youth level. He hadn't had 10, 20 years being a, a proper coach. So being at Melwood and hearing how revered Michael Peel's tactics were and how his man management and coaching sessions were, I think he quickly realised that he was somebody that he could trust to to implement his views in the game. And then the likes of Tom Culshaw, who does the unit work for the defence and the set pieces, which have been massive this season. All of that came as a package, which I think complements his strengths, which are, you know, the leadership, the man management, the setting standards, you know, and then as I touched on, just lifting everything, like not leaving any stone unturned, I think. He's very much been the driving force, but he's had a great team around him. Michael Beale was the guy who was at—he was in the Chelsea academy for a while, and he was also yeah. in Brazil, I think, coaching. Yeah, Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo. Um, what, what's your impression of, I suppose, what Gerald's ambitions are? You know, he's, he's done—you know—the thing he was brought there to do, which is get the title back. What, what do you think he wants to do with this team? And also, do, I mean, are there fears that this team has done so well that they're going to face a battle to keep some players this summer? I think there definitely will be interest in a number of the players, but Rangers are in a, a good position in that regard because, uh, you know, most of the top assets are, if you look at, if you go through them, well, you know, Conor Goldson and James Tavernier are the two exceptions, you're 28 and 29 in the last year. But again, they're not the age where they are the top assets. So you're looking at that and think, they could still be your your sort of cornerstones of that defence for the next few years and you could trade the younger players and try and build on that. So you look at Glenn Kamara, 24, um, another three years. Joe Arrivo's got another two years. He's, 20, he's, he's 24 as well. you get got Morelos, 24. Kent, 20, 24. Hadji, 21. You know, you look at you you go through it and there's about five or six players there who could potentially make Rangers a lot of money. I think it's just about getting the timing right and making sure that you don't change too much. So I could I could definitely see the likes of Bonabarisic, who's going to the Euros as Croatia's first choice left back. He's, you know, approaching his late 20s now. And Kamara with Finland, who's just been phenomenal. He could easily play uh, at the top level, I think, in England. So uh, you look at those and you think those two might be the, the most likely if there is so much as a, a major tournament sort of um, tax to be charged um, but on clubs. But... Uh, I don't think there'll be major turnover and I think the last thing Gerard will want to do is see his team ripped up but in terms of where he wants to go I don't think he's in any rush to leave Rangers whatsoever I think he wants to he wants to assert his own period of dominance now in Glasgow I think he'll want to reel up two or three titles have a crack at the Champions League next year and again if it, if it is Liverpool which is obviously where he's always wanting to go and in the, in the end up however long it takes to get there then if he can prove himself, not just in Europe, uh, not just in the Europa League, where he's lost five games in 43, <laughs> got to the group stages through four qualifying rounds, three years in a row, got to the last 16 twice in a row. You know, his record in Europe was unbelievable in terms of beating Galatasaray, you know, Drama Benfica, Porto. You know, you could go on, the list could go on and on, but if he can prove it in the Champions League, 
and the money that would bring in the Rangers, that would bring in at least 25, 30 million a year, then you look at the revenues and they would have completely, just since 2018 he came in, they've completely turned that deficit, that budget deficit on its head because that is the defining factor in terms of who's the dominant side in Scotland because you get three million for winning the league in Scotland, it's, it's negligible. So it basically comes down to whether you can secure that Champions League money and they've done so well, they've actually cracked that cycle and they've now created two Champions League spots next year. So again, depending on how they got on the Europa League this year, they could they could claim an automatic place for the winners of the league next year, which would which <laughs> seems unbelievable to say it, but Nick would make next season's title even bigger than this season because it's a guaranteed 25 million. So um, you've gone for Celtic having a 70 million pound budget advantage three or four years ago to now potentially being behind Rangers in a couple of years. So it's, it's remarkable to turn around and, and the speed it under Gerard. If this is a, an audition, Jordan, for Gerard, and there seems to be this un. Well, it is a spoken about feeling, actually, that he might be next in line if and when ever Klopp decides to go. It seems to be going almost per- like pretty much perfectly in all of those areas you describe on the pitch, off the pitch, tactically, um, uh, recruitment, finances, training, European experience, et cetera, et cetera. Is there anything that he needs to improve on that you've noticed from covering them that a club like Liverpool will want to be seeing in the years ahead? Well, I think that the one thing he has improved on for last year, and I think he's acknowledged that himself, is not getting too high or low. You know, I think everybody looked at him as a player and thought, you know, he's this Roy of the Rovers type, vet, you know, plays with his heart on his sleeve. And I guess it comes that, you know, people imagine what would a Gerrard team look like? And it's really different to what most people would have expected, I think, because it's really controlled. And he is mostly controlled on the side of the park. I expected him to be a bit more you know, to be a bit more animated, but he usually is pretty reserved. Um, he can have his, his bursts of emotion like everybody, but I, I think that's pretty normal. But I think the two things that I come back to is the Celtic game in December 2019 where, you know, he does, you know, incredible scenes where they all ran to the, the, the far side, first time they beat Celtic away in 10 years. Um, he was shouting in the camera, running, jumping. It looked like, you know, it was a major moment, but, then people look back at that and say, oh, did they get too carried away? Did that affect them? I don't really buy that, that he would have got carried away with that. I think he was just enjoying the moment. But where I do think he's improved, and I think he said it as well, himself as well, but when they were going through that difficult spell in the second half of last season, I remember being in the, the, the press conference room at Tynecastle where they'd just been put out of the cup. Alfredo Morelos had been dropped for turning up late and he'd admitted that he'd basically trying everything and run out ideas and how to halt the decline. And he could twice get asked you know, are you having to think about the summer and your future? And twice he never, he, he had the chance to completely say, no, I'm here for the long haul. I'll be able to turn that around. He wasn't sure and you could feel the emotion. And I, everybody was looking like this might be the end of the road here. But, you know, the turnaround since then has been remarkable. And the only real setback they've had this year where I think you could test that theory as to whether he's got that emotional balance uh, a bit more on an even keel was when they get put out um, with the League Cup by St Mirren in December and, you know, I remember if people were a bit like, as we're waiting for him to come over and do the press, um, it was like, you know, how is he going to handle this? Because that was a massive chance to get the first trophy. And he came over and he was like, you know, putting a brave face on it, you could tell. But it was a very, really, you know, he, he, he absorbed all the blame. Didn't he blame any of the players? Didn't he say the players didn't improve? He took responsibility for it. I thought that was, that was a, a different way of handling it than he'd been used to. So I think that's the, 
the main thing that I think he's improved on that arc for being a captain to a manager but I think that will come with, with time and he's definitely getting better Liverpool have lost six games in a row at home you know you see the situation that's building up with Jurgen Klopp there I'm not suggesting that Jurgen Klopp should be sacked or is considering walking away at, at this stage but it's clear there's a, there's a situation developing now at, at Liverpool and I think you know the inclination from everyone involved there is you know let's see how we start next season before making any rash decisions I suppose what I'm trying to say is if it was to get to a situation where I don't know October November Liverpool's form hasn't picked up again Liverpool changing their manager, they need someone to come in, knows the club inside out, has that feeling, a bit like when Solskjaer went into United, we need a safe, you know, a safe pair of hands, someone who gets the club. It's not in, in any way now, you know, I don't think unrealistic to think Gerard would be quite high on among those considerations. From a Rangers point of view, do you think the club have, you know, at the back of, at the back of their minds, a plan for if and when that happens in terms of how solid the foundations are or is the club very much built in Gerard's image now and if Gerard was to step away it's a big problem I think it's fair to say that since Gerard came in it is built in his image to a certain extent but you know Ross Wilson's obviously came in as sporting director since about a year and a half in the job now so he's obviously you know looking looking ahead and you know you look at brought in Hassan who had a big part in bringing him to Southampton. So, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that, you know, Rangers are always looking ahead to life beyond Gerrard, but I don't think they'll be, a bit like I said earlier, I don't think they'll be worrying about him leaving too soon. But if it got to October or November and Liverpool did come calling, would Gerrard go? I think it would be hard to imagine Gerrard turn Liverpool down, even if it was during a turbulent time. And, you know, he there would be concerns, obviously, that it would be going too early. It could potentially damage his, his trajectory. Um, and only he'll probably only get one shot at it at Liverpool. So I think he's got that to weigh up. But that's a bit of a weird thing, isn't it? Because we always say, oh, what if he's not ready? And maybe maybe we saw that with Frank Lampard. But then, I don't, you know, you say, well, David Moyes had 10 years at Everton and everyone thought he was ready when he went into Man United. It's It's very difficult to know when a coach is ready for a job like that, isn't it? Well, it is difficult to know as well. And especially going for a a job in Scotland to a top job in England like even Rodgers had to go in at Leicester level he never went straight in at the top so that's the thing everybody thinks well it's a rite of passage that Gerrard's going to go straight to Liverpool but I've never you know you know more than me but I've always thought Liverpool are they're not run by guys from Merseyside who (laughs) who have grown up with with Gerrard you know they're very methodical it's you know there's numbers behind decisions so I think Gerard will obviously, you know, have elevated himself because his name. But I think Liverpool will judge it on the job he's done and whether they think what he's done at Rangers is transferable to them. I think the more he does in Europe, and the more he proves that he's capable of playing a sophisticated style, because it's not back to, back to the wall by any means. It's a proper playing teams off the park, um, really well organised. So I think if he can do that Champions League level, it'll make that transition less risky I think but I think he would want a few years at Rangers to properly say that's job done I've not just toppled Celtic I've now made Rangers mm-hmm. the sort of dominant force and he can leave with Rangers with a gap to Celtic but whether that happens because you got a contract to 2024 but whether the two <laughs> the two of them align um, perfectly for them to switch at that moment the football rarely works like that does it so I guess we'll see Can you explain to people listening from Glasgow, where you're speaking, whether this is felt to be a turning of the tables that that is here to stay for a little bit, because Celtic have been imploding on and off the pitch, 
and it's been quite the opposite across the city. In the last couple of days, there's been this narrative about, well, you know, Celtic lost the league rather than Rangers winning it. But Rangers are on course for a record equal in points, total 106 points. So I don't, I don't really think you can say that when they've only drawn four games all season. So Rangers have gone and claimed it. And the turnaround since March has been has been remarkable. So uh, I think you look at the squad, strange enough, it's the oldest, oldest squad in the league, just about 28. But within that, the top assets are at a good age, as I spoke about. So I think you look at that, the, the, the bulk of that squad and you think that's got another two, three, four years left in it together as a group and it just needs tweaks here and there. But I definitely think Gerard won't be thinking who can we cash in on he'll be he'll be wanting to keep as many of them as possible and uh, and try and build on it and I guess he's got the best the best case to make to the board <laughs> after he's just delivered the, the, the title they've been chasing for the last decade so no I definitely think there is the feeling that Rangers have taken over the baton and Celtic might need a year or two to transition because it's not just that player level with Ayer or Edward potentially leaving that's you know it could be 10, 10 plus players as a new manager there's a new chief exec, there's a potentially a new director of football. It's the whole spine of the club is probably going to need repaired, whereas Rangers, it's now, they've had their three years of building and they're settled. So it's essentially, can they sort of hammer home that advantage when, when they're on top? And I don't think after everything that's happened, they'll, they'll be leaving any, <laughs> there'll be a lack of ruthlessness. Just to finish all of this, and actually this comes from your column, David, about how players in England or some players in England have reacted to the Rangers title yeah that was a curious um, story that for some reason I didn't know about I don't know if you did Jordan that players who have been associated with Rangers over the years but are not necessarily playing for them now we're talking the likes of Ollie McBurney down at Sheffield United and and a few others too um, decide against joining their team's pre-match huddle because of the links, the connotations it has with Celtic, who I do remember sort of starting that in the 1990s. But, you know, we talk about Guard of Honours, which I'm sure you'll touch upon. Um, but this is something I didn't see coming. Uh, I think it's had a bit of publicity before, but yeah, we highlighted it in the column this morning and it's one of the more unconventional superstitions. Uh, well, it's just a, another one of the, the thousands of quirks of the, the old firm rivalry, I guess. It, <laughs> it stretches to everything um, imaginable. But I, I think, you know, George Edmondson, I think, you know, when, when a picture of him came out on Twitter the other week, um, you know, the Rangers fans were loving the fact that he was uh, refusing to link his arms. He was just sort of standing like this. So considering he'd, you know, uh, he, he'd been in breach of COVID rules and had been yeah. loaned out, I think it was probably a way to play to the, play to get back in the, the good books of the fans, I think. I, McBurnley has obviously been well-known as a Rangers fan growing up and he doesn't do it. I think, I think I'm sure I've seen John Fleck do it yep. as well. Um, so I, I think it's been quite a well-known thing that if you're a Rangers fan growing up, you just do not do the huddle. Um, even as kids, like, you know, even as kids, you were playing like you know Rangers fans. If their team manager wanted them to do a huddle, it's just it's not a done thing. You know, it's seen as like it's the last thing you would do. You know, when you're on your deathbed and asked to do a huddle, and the people would reject it. But uh, that's that's Glasgow for you. So was this Glasgow doing social distancing way before that? <laughs> so we made that a trend. We saw this coming. That was it. <laughs> uh, we will end it there. Uh, fascinating stuff, Jordan. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Adam, David, uh, see you both soon. Back on Thursday with Matt Slater for the Business of Sport podcast and David uh, back on Wednesday with his YouTube series Ask Ornstein and we'll be back here next week. Bye for now. Cheers, guys. The Athletic.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.